0: Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Understanding the Fine Print, the who, when, and what to do about ARIA in patients with Alzheimer's disease, radiology module. This activity is jointly provided by Medical Education Resources, M.E.R., and Efficient LLC, and is supported by an educational grant from Lilly, Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives.
1: Hello, my name is Dr. James Galvin, and welcome to the radiology module of Understanding the Fine Print, the Who, When, and What to Do About Amyloid-Related Imaging Abnormalities in Patients with Alzheimer's Disease. This activity is part of a series of six distinct activities each targeting the commonalities and unique aspects of ARIA recognition and management across four specialties, neurology, radiology, emergency medicine, and primary care. In part one, our panel of diverse specialists gave a background of the key features and implications of ARIA that are relevant to clinicians across all of these specialties. In this module, we'll dive deeper into the critical role of radiologists in the monitoring for identifying and staging aria. To help drive this discussion, I'd like to welcome our representative radiologist, Dr. Gloria Shang, associate professor of clinical radiology at the Wild Cornell Medical College, as well as neurologist, Dr. John Toledo, assistant professor of neurology at the Nance National Alzheimer Center at Houston Methodist. I'm very excited to have you both here with me today.
2: Hi, Jim, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Okay.
1: And, and John, good to see you again. Hi, Jim. Good to see you. Very excited to be here sharing
3: uh, these data.
1: All right. So, Gloria, tell us a little bit about some of the side effects that can occur with the amyloid uh, disease-modifying therapies. Uh, how common is ARIA?
2: So, in, in terms of side effects of these beta-amyloid disease-modifying therapies, uh, the main side effect is really ARIA. ARIA. So for aducanumab, the rate of ARIA-E, which is the edematous form, is 35% compared to 3% in the placebo group. For ARIA-H, it's 28% in the aducanumab group versus 9% in the placebo group. In the lakanumab group, they had a lower rate of ARIA of 13% in the ARIA-E group compared to 2% in the placebo group, 17% of ARIA-H compared to 9% in the placebo group. In the denanumab trial, there's an estimated rate of about 28% for ARIA-E compared to 1% in the placebo group, 31% for ARIA-H compared to 7% in the placebo group.
1: So, you know, we're going to talk a lot about ARIA over the next uh, uh, few slides, and I think it's worthwhile just kind of going over that there were two different categories of ARIA. First is the ARIA-E, which is the uh, the edematous form. Um, and so you can see under the slide here that we have this parenchymal vasogenic edema um, that sort of tracks across the white matter. Um, and you can see some effusion as well. The other form is ARIA-H. Uh, and there are two types that we typically are looking for. The first are microhemorrhages. So these are small. They're less than one centimeter. Uh, they're hypointense, and, and they really represent hemosiderin deposition in the parenchyma. The other type of ARIA H that we can see is something called superficial siderosis, and this really represents a linear hypointense hemosiderin deposition that we see in the leptomeningeal or subpial space.
2: So, when starting a patient on one of these disease-modifying therapies, it's important to get a baseline MRI. So, as we've shown you a lot of these images of ARIA, uh, images that show edema and hemorrhage, it's important to know whether or not the patient already has this at baseline or if this, some, this is something that they developed while on therapy. So in terms of recommended parameters, uh, there were trials um, that used, for example, a 1.5 Tesla MRI scanner to assess for ARIA. Uh, nowadays, it's recommended to use a 3 Tesla scanner, mainly because of the higher sensitivity for microhemorrhages and to use a slice thickness that's less than or equal to 5 millimeters. In terms of things to report, um, obviously pre-existing microhemorrhages, uh, if the patient has them, even before therapy is important to note, whether or not the patient already has superficial siderosis, and any other incidental or acute findings, especially acute or chronic infarctions are important to note.
1: So John, let me turn to you here. And um, you know, what are some of the things we have to think about as we begin the initiation of an anti-amyloid therapy?
3: Based on the protocol for the uh, different approved uh, drugs, uh, we have some timelines uh, when we need to do a repeat imaging. Uh, for example, uh, for Adokumunab, uh, the MRI is done uh, prior to the 5th, 7th, ninth, and 12th infusion. And in case of uh, lecanemab, it's done uh, before the 5th, 7th, and 14th. And one thing to remember is that the protocols differ in terms of how frequently the infusion is administered. So, when you look at the decuminum, you will see that treatment is given every month, whereas in lecanumab, the infusion is given every two weeks.
1: Right. And, and John, I guess the other thing to mention is that we also do an MRI if symptoms suggestive of ARIA occur. So, yeah. not just the standard schedule for dosing, but there's also the opportunity that the clinician should. Image people if symptoms appear. So, what are some of the clinical correlates we should be looking for in case ARIA is appearing?
3: Yeah. So, and there are like uh, several symptoms. Uh, most of them are not uh, localizing, but the most common ones uh, that the patients on this treatment experience are headache, uh, confusion, altered mental status, and this can go. Uh, to more severe symptoms with uh, encephalopathy. Other symptoms that we can see are the dizziness and vertigo, nausea and vomiting, fatigue, gait disturbances, and also vision impairment because there is certain predominant or posterior areas. Uh, Less common is like the presence of epileptiform changes in the EEG and seizures. One thing to remember is that in general, most of the area cases are asymptomatic where approximately 20 to 22% of patients will have symptomatic ARIA-E. And the rate of symptoms in, in patients who experience ARIA-H is even lower. It's less than 10%. But these are the ones that we need to monitor. The difference in terms of uh, headache prevalence in a clinical trial between patients on placebo and patients who were uh, on the treatment was only like 3 to 6%. So uh, it might be the case that some of these headaches are uh, experienced normally by patients and are not related, but uh, always the co- correct approach is to make sure that there are no uh, area that we can find in these additional MRIs that we may order during follow-up.
1: Yeah, and I think this is a good case where communication between specialties is going to be really important. So given how important communication be, Gloria, what, what kind of things as a radiologist might use? You- need or want to hear about as you're thinking about these scans
2: yeah i i agree communication is definitely going to be important and you know sometimes patients come from outside of our medical system so we don't have their medical records Um, so certainly very important for uh, the referring physician to give us the history that the patient's actually on one of these therapies and what their suspicion is for aria because as we mentioned A lot of these findings in terms of edema and microhemorrhages, they're not specific to ARIA. And so we really need to be um, tipped off with a history to look for these findings.
1: With that in mind, when we look at these pictures and when you're looking at these images, um, you know, uh, what are the grades of severity? How do we know what constitutes just a little bit of ARIA-E versus a lot of ARIA-E?
2: Yeah, so um, there there's a grading scheme that's been devised in terms of um, assessing how severe the aria is, uh, and this is sort of how it's laid out. Uh, so if you look at the first image, this is a T2 flare uh, image, you can see the circles around this area of T2 hyperintensity and the left superior frontal gyrus, and also involve, involving the subcortical white matter Because it's one location only, and because it's small, it's less than 5 centimeters, this would be classified as mild Aria E. If you look at the middle image, um, you can see the T2 hyperintensity, or the fluid, is within sulci at the right temporal occipital junction. And so this would correspond to a sulcal effusion. Uh, It's still one location, but because it's larger, so it's um, greater than 5 centimeters um, but less than 10, Uh, we'd consider this moderate. If you had two areas or more than one area of RAE but it remained small, that would also be classified as moderate. And finally, if you look at the image on the right, you can see there's a large area of vasogenic uh, edema in the right frontal lobe as well as in the right parietal lobe. So two large areas, both of which are greater than 10 centimeters. So because of that, this would be classified as uh, severe RAE.
1: And I guess what's really, what's, you know, could be challenging for clinicians and, and radiologists who are not experienced with this is, you know, on the left hemisphere, there's also the more traditional kind of, you know, white matter or hyperintensive signals that we see so often in older adults
2: that's That's a very good point, and that's where I think again we need that baseline MRI to really figure out if this patient already has, you know what we tend to call these as white matter hyperintensities related to microvascular change, or if this is these are new white matter hyperintensities related to the timing of starting uh, one of these therapies. So that's absolutely a great point. We do see these white matter hyperintensities a lot, um, so comparing with priors is important. Similarly, for ARIA-H, uh, there's a grading scale uh, to assess severity. Uh, so in the first image, you can see the circle around uh, one area of superficial siderosis in the right temporal lobe. So again, this is an area where there's hemosiderin within the sulci. Um, and then the arrows are pointing to these punctate focal microhemorrhages. So these uh, small foci of, of hemorrhage that are less than a centimeter and in the parenchyma. Uh, In this patient, you can see there's one area of superficial siderosis and there are two foci of microhemorrhage. So by the classification scheme, this is considered mild ARIA-H. In the middle image, you can see the circle and the arrow pointing to two separate areas of superficial siderosis. So with that, it's considered moderate ARIA-H. If this patient had more than five, between five to nine microhemorrhages, that would also qualify them as moderate ARIA-H, even without the superficial siderosis. And on the image on the right, we can see the circle pointing out um, more than 10, a clustered area of more than 10 microhemorrhages. So by that definition, they also would meet criteria for severe ARIA-H. If this patient had more than two areas of superficial siderosis, even without the microhemorrhages, they would be considered severe ARIA-H.
1: So, you know, I think when we try to tie this all together, we're always trying to think about what, what, how we can apply this in clinical practice. Um, so I encourage the viewers to visit the American Society for Neuroradiology website to see what some of their recommended uh, reporting templates are. Other quick tips, again, you can look for a directory of RE experienced providers, and this could be very helpful. So again, resources that allow you to learn more about this and, and seek out colleagues who can assist you if you need that extra help. And as neurologists, we love differential diagnosis. So Gloria, from, from your perspective, what are we looking at from the radiology side? What are we thinking about when we see these changes?
2: Yeah, you know, I think as we mentioned, uh, ARIA symptoms, they can mimic other neurological disease processes. So it's certainly not specific for ARIA. Um, with certain symptoms, you would think about acute ischemic stroke, for example. You'd think about subarachnoid hemorrhage. And you could think about PRESS, posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome.
1: Yeah, so I think that is the challenge, though, since these symptoms are not specific to ARIA. You know, someone walks in and You know, they have a horrible headache and they have dizziness. You know, these are the things that immediately pop into your your head. And a lot of these are older adults, so they may have hypertension and the like. So you'd have to think about press. Um, John, would you want to add anything to this? What else would you think about? Or or is there any order you would place these things in? Or is it based on what the patient is complaining about?
3: Yes. And so here we have, uh, like... uh several symptoms that you can have in these pre, uh, main conditions that we are considering for the different di- uh, differential diagnosis. What you can see with the different green check marks are those that are also present in area. So what you find is like a, acute onset hemiparesis or you see a facial paralysis. Those or some specific visual field changes. Those can be potentially more specific to a stroke syndrome presentation or if you see a brainstem presentation that would look very different from what you would see in ARIA. Two conditions where we can see some more overlap are the supraacnoid hemorrhage and PRESS. And and here, as we can see, the most frequent symptoms are going to be common to both. So whereas a mild ARIA E presentation probably won't look clinically like a supraacnoid hemorrhage, which would have more severe symptoms, something that is more challenging uh, might be PRESS, uh, because in in, in PRESS, uh, we'll have like a very similar uh, clinical presentation. And in those cases, uh, what will be helpful is to look back at the clinical history uh, and the medications to find those uh, risk factors for, for PRESS that uh, may help us uh, differentiate these conditions. So
1: let, let's dive again a little bit more into the detail. So, so uh, Gloria, take us through you know stroke, Rae, e what are we looking for? How is it different?
2: Yeah, I think in terms of Rae, uh, especially in the severe case, you're going to see these large areas of T2 hyperintensity, these large parenchymal areas of T2 hyperintensity, um, which can mimic what we see with large territory strokes as well. And so this is an example where you can see this pretty large right hemispheric stroke with a lot of T2 hyperintensity I think one thing that's very helpful for me in differentiating these two entities is ARIA we think of as more of a vasogenic edema. So it should spare the cortex uh, versus strokes, which usually involves both cortex and, and subcortical white matter. You can kind of see that signal going all the way to cortex Another thing that's very useful is using the diffusion-weighted sequence. And so, um, again, with vasogenic edema, you don't have that restricted diffusion that you do with acute ischemia. And so, for example, even if it's bright on the diffusion-weighted imaging, you can see the ADC is also bright. Uh, So this is basically T2 shine-through related to vasogenic edema. On the other hand, with the with acute stroke, you do have true restricted diffusion, where you, set, you see bright signal on the DWI, but also ADC hypointensity. So I think remembering those two things, cortex involvement and the diffusion-weighted uh, imaging sequence can be very helpful in differentiation.
1: Does yeah. following sort of vascular distributions, is that helpful? Does ARIA-E cross vascular distributions, or does it respect vascular distributions?
2: Yeah, I think in general, vascular distributions can help as well. Um, ARIA-E tends to be more patchy, so it may not be sort of confined to MCA territory, for example. Uh, so that that would also be a good thought, I think, in terms of differentiating. We've talked a little bit about PRESS uh, already, and uh, certainly the imaging can be very similar. Uh, so both are more edema, so cortex is usually spared in both cases. Uh, and both tend to involve uh, subcortical white matter, especially um, uh, especially on the flare sequence, you can see these parenchymal areas of T2 hyperintensity. Uh, classically, PRESS is uh, involving the occipital lobes bilaterally. So it's usually more symmetric, whereas ARIA can be more patchy and more asymmetric. Uh, so that can be helpful. Um, the other thing is, uh, again, sort of knowing the history. Did the patient come in with a lot of blood pressure fluctuations where you think about press? Uh, are they on a medication uh, that predisposes them to press uh, versus ARIA-E?
1: Yeah. I was thinking that, you know, the fluctuations in blood pressure probably be, would be the one strongest clinical clue, right? So those people that have, truly have uncontrolled hypertension are much probably statistically more likely to be affected with PRESS than they are necessarily with ARIA, but you're right. I think it can be a a real challenge. And then to complete our conversation, Gloria, take us through how we sort of differentiate ARIA-E from subarachnoid hemorrhage.
2: Yeah, so for subarachnoid hemorrhage, uh, you'll often see high signal within the sulci. You can see in this right-sided image um, with the white circle, this sort of bright signal within the sulci which is due to blood in subarachnoid hemorrhage versus fluid or sulco fusion in the RAE case. Uh, so again, they can be very similar on the flare sequence. Uh, in this case, you know, really the, the susceptibility-weighted or gradient echo sequence could help you um, see the blood products in hemorrhage versus RAE. Because with RAE, it's supposedly, it's more of a fluid effusion and not blood products. Great.
1: Um, and, and so... We talked about the things that they look like, but I, I think it's always, you know, what are those pitfalls? What are those interpretation challenges? Um, you know, particularly at three o'clock in the morning when you're getting asked to look at some of these things, because that's when everybody shows up, you know, at the hospital, it's always at three o'clock in the morning, right? So so from an E perspective, what are some of those pitfalls we need to look out for?
2: Yeah, so here's some of the pitfalls that they've seen in a lot of the clinical trials, for example. So if you look at the left-sided image, um, you can see where it says ARIA-E. There's a circle that shows an area of T2 hyperintensity in the parenchyma, um, which is compatible with sort of that vasogenic edema we see with ARIA-E. And what's nice is we have the follow-up after the patient stopped the medication, and that actually went away. So that sort of corresponds to what we expect um, RAE to do uh, after after stopping the medication. Whereas if you look at that same patient, the area is pointing to this small linear area of T2 hyperintensity. And certainly on that first image, you would think maybe that's another area of RAE, just like the larger parenchymal area. It looks very similar, especially if it newly developed. You would think, okay, it's another site of RAE. But interesting to note that on the follow-up after stopping the medication, uh, that persisted. So in that case, that wasn't another site of RAE. That was actually uh, an incidental infarct, a small vessel infarct. If you look at the middle image, uh, you know, these are some other instances in which you can be fooled into calling something RAE. One thing we often talk about uh, in terms of educating radiologists is as much as you can to try to keep these patients on uh, the same type of scanner, uh, you know, same three Tesla signal strength, because different vendors can also have different technical parameters that could change the appearance. And so in this case, vendor one, you can see just some very subtle T2 hyperintensity just around the occipital horns. Uh, which is normal, but then it looks somewhat amplified on the Vendor 2 image. So again, probably a technical uh, difference and not true aria. Uh, With the hearing aid, so the hearing aid can give you uh, a loss of signal on that side from the artifact, and then the, the adjacent slice can have this very bright signal. So again, that can fool you into calling parenchymal edema or aria E. Um, And that's something often very important in inpatients. uh, If they're on supplemental oxygen, um, you can actually get high signal within the sulci on a flare sequence. So we always try to remind our um, referring physicians and our techs to turn off the oxygen as much as possible so we don't get that artifactual signal within the sulci, which again, in this case, could fool you into calling a sulco effusion an ARIA-E. So just many, many things to keep in mind in terms of trying to stay consistent um, as these patients are being monitored and thinking of these other things that could affect the sequence.
1: Well, this makes me appreciate my radiology colleagues a lot more. Um, When they ever hand me images, they're always nice images, and I just get to look at them. I I guess you hide all these bad images or difficulties uh, from being displayed to the neurologist who ordered the scan. Thanks, Jim. All right, so we talked a lot about ARIA-E. Let's now talk about ARIA-H and what are some of those pitfalls or challenges that that you'll face?
2: Yeah, so similarly, many things to keep in mind in terms of pitfalls for ARIA-H. Um, Microhemorrhages, as we've seen, they're these tiny little dots, often punctate dark dots, um, and they can be very subtle sometimes. So for example, uh, this is one patient where it says motion and partial volume effects. The arrow is pointing to a very nice punctate focus of microhemorrhage in that first image. On the second one, because the patient could be moving, uh, maybe the slice thickness is a little bit different, that microhemorrhage is actually blurred out. So it could be a pitfall in terms of seeing or not seeing a microhemorrhage, um, something to keep in mind. And you know, with both gradient echo and susceptibility-weighted imaging, you have susceptibility artifacts and effects, especially where there's bone involved. So skull base areas, frontal bones, um, you're gonna have some of this dark signal that's sort of uh, spilling into your parenchymal signal. So something to keep in mind as well. And then finally, phase artifacts. So especially when you have pulsation from adjacent veins, um, that could give you sort of these wraparound uh, sort of artifacts that can fool you into calling aria. So again, uh, being aware of a lot of these artifacts is very important.
1: All right. So we talked about some of the pitfalls. We talked about what we're looking for. Let's just review again and go over what's recommended. What's the best way to image?
2: Yeah, so just to summarize what we've talked about so far, um, we've talked about how three Tesla MRI has greater sensitivity than 1.5 Tesla. So if possible, to try to monitor all of your patients on a three Tesla scanner and to keep them consistently on the same type of scanner through their follow-up. Um, again to have a slice thickness that's less than or equal to five millimeters. Again, trying to keep that consistent to make sure you're not over-undercalling aria. Again, a T2 flare sequence is really the sequence you want to use. Conventional T2 is not going to let you see the sulcal um, effusions that you would see with ARIA E. And SWI is definitely more sensitive than gradient echo. And so it's advised if you have that to use SWI. But if you use gradient echo, again, try to keep consistent.
1: All right. That's great. But so this is optimal strategies. Uh, I want to throw out suboptimal, right? So I want to throw out two situations and, you know, and again, so you can give your colleagues some thoughts about this. So one, my claustrophobic patient who's going into an open scanner what 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 can i see what can i see what do i expect
2: that's a tricky one because typically with open scanners uh the image quality is um not as good uh and so they they can do a flare sequence you will see the parenchymal edema you probably will see the sulcal fusion uh but in general the the scans i've seen that were done in open scanners they usually don't have a great susceptibility weighted sequence so it would mean that you would detect the RAE, but you probably wouldn't detect the RAH. And especially microhemorrhages would be very limited um, on an open MRI. So again, it would be working with neurology to see, can we give the patient something to calm them down so they could get an appropriate MRI scan to follow them up?
1: Okay. Now, the more difficult situation, either a a remoter situation where MRI is not available or the patient has a contraindication to MRI. So metal, uh, an implantable device, what do you do?
2: That's that's another very tricky uh, situation. So, You can get a CT scan. Um, CT scan will show you the parenchymal edema, especially if it's uh, moderate or severe. It's probably going to be large enough that you'll see that edema on CT. So maybe you might be able to see ARIA-E. But all the other findings of ARIA, such as the sulcal effusion, the microhemorrhage, the siderosis, you're not going to be able to see on CT. Um, And so it's really going to be very limited. Um, in terms of monitoring these patients. Yeah, so John, what do we do
3: next? We are going to now put all of this together. So uh, we we had a patient who had just like a regular monitoring MRI or had some neo-onset symptoms that we thought were consistent with possible area, and, and we got an MRI. So here then we're we need to consider two things. Uh, One is, are there any clinical symptoms uh, related to ARIA? And the other one is, what are the imaging changes uh, that we find? And so we're gonna start from the right-hand side of the slide uh, where there are no symptoms. We were just uh, monitoring uh, the uh, pre-specified visits. And then there is only some mild changes on the MRI Based on on guidelines and the experience of the trials, uh, you can continue the treatment and what you will do is you will change uh, the frequency of the MRI scans, where you will uh, check every month and and see what is the progression and then decide if you need to make any additional changes. Uh, Most of the patients in the clinical trials were able to uh, restart later on the treatment or continue, continue the treatment. Uh, then it changes uh, once we find uh, moderate or severe changes on the MRI or patients are um, symptomatic. Uh, in those cases, we are gonna suspend uh, the treatment and we are gonna continue also doing the monthly MRIs. Here, Dr. Chang discussed some differences uh, between area E and area H. In Area H what we are looking at is, is uh, stabilizations and no new events. So basically these findings are not gonna disappear. However, when we are monitoring area E, the expectation is that there is gonna be a resolution of the symptoms. And based on the experience on the different trials, approximately in, in four weeks, a high seventy percent, low eighty percent of the patients have a resolution of area E. In those cases, then we can resume the treatment. Then the question that there might be some okay. guidelines or some expertise, and if you look at the label in the, in the FDA, will be the cases that have mild symptoms and mild area e And here, there is uh, no unified response. Uh, where, so basically, the recommendation is based on clinical judgment, uh, you can either... Uh, suspend and monitor or continue the treatment uh, and uh, monitor mostly with MRIs watching for changes. All
1: right. Uh, So again, I want to thank uh, Dr. Chang and Dr. Toledo for joining us in in this really interesting uh, interactive conversation. Thank you so much, Gloria.
2: Thank you. Thank you for this discussion.
1: Okay. And John, thank you. Thank you for having me. I want you to make sure you check out the closing module of this activity for a multi-specialty discussion on the collaborative management of ARIA. This module is also summarized in a downloadable interactive infographic so you can access the information quickly on your own time. You can find the link on the program landing page. All right, now you ruined my whole this conversation. I don't know what I'm going to say. Okay,
0: You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Medical Education Resources, MER, and Efficient LLC, and is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.